Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no ice word. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. Hey, social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. (laughs) And again, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage from ANU's Australian Studies Institute with the support of the School of Politics and International Relations and the Crawford School of Public Policy. And public policy is very much in our frame this week as we discuss the many fascinating and wonderful ideas contained in a brand new book, which I'm happy to bring to you fresh off the presses. It's called The Nordic Edge, and one of the authors and the co-editor of this book, Bursting with Creative Policy Possibilities for Australia, and that's its actual subtitle, Policy Possibilities for Australia, is Dr. Andrew Scott, who is Professor of Politics and Policy at Deakin University, and he's also the inaugural convener of the Nordic Policy Centre, which is a new collaboration between the Australia Institute and Deakin University, and that's the Australia Institute, not the Australian Studies Institute at, at which I'm employed. And by way of further background, Andrew Scott is the author of several books among which is the beautifully titled Northern Lights, the positive policy examples of Sweden, Finland, Denmark and Norway. These countries, along with Iceland, constitute the five states covered in the Nordic Edge. They have a combined population roughly equivalent to Australia at about 27 million. Andrew, welcome to, and I'm going to say this, Demokratia Makara. Thank you, Mark. Do you know what that is? That's Finnish for democracy sausage. Ah, well done. Well done. <laughs> well, I'm um, not so uh, good on the languages. No, but, well, uh, apologies to uh, people who actually speak Finnish. You'd probably say that was uh, uninterpretable, but uh, there it is. I, I did check it with my friend Tehi, uh, and uh, she told me that uh, I had it roughly right. I mean, she was very <laughs> polite about it. Congratulations on this book, The Nordic Edge, and indeed on the creation of the Nordic Policy Centre. Thank you, Mark. It's much appreciated. Now, we've long heard of the progressive policy landscape of these northern European countries. Mm. So what is what is new about the approach you're taking here in this book? Well, yes, we have long heard about it and we haven't, however, drilled down 
enough into the detail of what they do, which we could do similarly here. We tend to look at Britain and America. And uh, we, we're stuck in the Anglosphere, even though a lot of politicians talk about globalization, they don't practice it. And globalization means and should mean looking at the most successful countries in the world that are tackling the problems we face. And when we do that, we, we keep coming back to Sweden, Denmark, Finland, Norway, and Iceland. Isn't that an interesting point you make that we are sort of stuck in the Anglosphere? We, we tend, we might, we might think we examine the, some of these other lessons, these other models, uh, mm. better ways of doing things. But we don't really consider them properly. We don't really consider them deeply. There's there's almost like a barrier there where, and it's not just simply a language barrier, but perhaps that's what kind of frames it. But it's almost this tendency to think, well, that's culturally different. Therefore, mm. for a range of reasons, it just can't possibly apply to us, or we won't take it quite so literally. Yeah, there is that assumption, but it's not doesn't hold up well when you look at it closer and look at evidence. Uh, one of one of the things that sometimes comes up there is the idea that those countries are more monocultural than mm. Australia, uh, which may have been true once, but it's no longer true because Sweden now has a quarter of its population born overseas. Sweden has taken in huge numbers of refugees, unlike Australia. And despite predictions decades ago by conservatives uh, that if, if Sweden became more multicultural, its welfare state would decline, that hasn't happened. Yeah. Now, let's just dwell on that for a moment. Uh, two things there, I suppose, the, the, the harmony that exists within Sweden or, or to the extent that it does, mm. but also this, this notion that these Nordic countries are essentially monocultures, because that is actually has been used as an argument for why some of the uh, creative policy ideas don't translate to other countries, particularly a multicultural country like Australia. And I think if I if I can frame the argument, you tell me if you've probably got a better definition of this, but my understanding is that the argument, such as it is, is that when you have a monocultural country, it's easier to get agreement on things, that uh, there aren't that sort of, uh, you know, whole lot of competing interests and value systems and and loyalty structures or whatever it is that that, that makes dramatic or radical policy change possible or difficult, depending on where you are? Yes. Uh, some people would say that, that monoculturalism helps social cohesion. Um, the argument's often more associated with the idea that people will only pay higher taxes if it goes to people like them. I, right. White, white Christians will only pay higher taxes if it goes to white Christians. That hasn't been supported by the Nordic experience. And it, it's more a sort of an ideology or a, or a concept rather than anything based on evidence. High taxes are still there despite becoming much more multicultural. Um, Australia, of course, is multicultural and, and can be proud of some of its multicultural achievements, particularly the mass post-war migration from many different countries and the end of the white Australia policy, finally, by the 1970s. But multiculturalism, you can't just roll out that word and say everything's fantastic mm. in Australia or America for that matter, um, because it can often mean a lot of inequality. We know how bad things are in America with inequality in terms of the treatment of the African-American population. The Black Lives Matter campaign has brought that back to the front of people's minds. We know how bad things are in Australia with the treatment of Indigenous people. We know how bad things are in Australia with the hostility towards refugees and asylum seekers in, in recent years, which is very unlike Sweden. And therefore, we need to probe further and, and not accept that 
notions of monoculturalism prevent us from looking at the Nordic countries. It's probably as much as anything else, is it not, um, you know, people looking for an explanation, really? They sort of uh, say, oh, well, those, yes, you can tell me about this, you know, state intervention in this sector or this, you know, progressive social policy, but it's easy for them to do for the reasons you've just outlined. It's not so easy for us. And so people are, you know, almost looking for an excuse not to do something. This is one of the uh, off the shelf justifications for essentially saying these lessons don't apply to us. Yes, absolutely. I think it's an easy, an easy excuse for not being ambitious enough in Australia in policy. Some people would also say it's because these countries are cold, that they, they huddle together. And, uh, <laughs> of course, now we're really getting into the ridiculous. Well, I know, but, I mean, but then how do you explain Russia and Alaska and, and North America? Uh, yeah. they're small countries. Uh, and that's another argument. Small countries can do things differently from big countries. But as you said, the combined population of the five Nordic countries, and they're all close together in a cluster is the same as Australia's. Mm. So uh, I think these are. These are fairly specious arguments that um, the small thing maybe probably is the is the, is the better one of even mm-hmm. if we think of mm-hmm. New Zealand uh, unitary states for example yep. they're not all necessarily unitary states are they but no. but um, you know where you've got essentially one central government and you don't have a lot of you know like as we do in the federation here competing state governments and the like you know jurisdictional imbugerances, if I could yep. lapse briefly <laughs> into the malbruff. <laughs> um, but this, but a, but a small unitary state does have a level of agility, perhaps, uh, you know, the mm. capacity to embrace change a bit more easily. Yeah, I think there's something in that for sure. I mean, small countries can change quicker than large countries, and New Zealand is a good example vis-a-vis Australia. That's true. Um, and perhaps Australia is affected, I think, by our three tiers of government and our constitutional dysfunction, where, mm. whereby Canberra holds the, the, the purse strings and the states have the constitutional responsibilities, and hence uh, the blame game starts on policy. Mm. And another thing, just perhaps to pop in, is that Sweden is a one-chamber parliament to unicameral. Right, yes, as is New Zealand. Yes, and- Unicameralism, one chamber parliament, got a bad name in Australia from the Bjorki Pedersen era. I wonder why. Well, <laughs> it was seen as, as one of the failings of a checks and balances. But of course, it was brought in. The one chamber was brought in by a Labor government in Queensland, Red Ted Theodore, because the upper houses were seen as obstructionist to democratically elected Labor governments often based And they were also propertied houses generally. The, the franchise was based on you had to have property, you had to be male for them, you know, in, in the early days, of course. Yep. You know, they were very exclusionary sort of uh, privileged, as you say, blockages to yep. uh, democratically elected government. Yes, it wasn't, you know, you know, it was in our lifetime the ALP still had a policy of abolishing the Senate. Back well, and I think, look, uh, I, I might be wrong here, but some of the states may still have that as a policy in terms of their state upper houses, and they just mm. simply haven't pursued it. No, they tend not to pursue it once um, some of their key people get seats you know, for some reason. <laughs> I'm not sure why that is. It's no. a bit like the British Labour Party in the House of Lords, which is an obviously undemocratic upper house. Yes, although there has been some reform there, hasn't there? Yeah, there has. Yeah. That's true. I mean, there are no, there's, they're, they're not, there's no more life peers, I don't think. Well, there seems to be a lot of former Blair government politicians who are now lords. That's true. Um, yeah, and I, you know, there used to be a view. I mean, I remember Jack Edgerton, the Queensland Labor power broker of yesteryear, took a knighthood, and that was seen as a reason to expel him from the ALP. The idea of taking imperial honours or lordships was not seen as uh, part of the Labor movement's ideals. But the upper house, 
I don't think the Bjorki-Pedersen corruption occurred because of the absence of an upper house. I think it occurred because the police force was corrupt, the judiciary wasn't sufficiently separate, and so on. The examples- And there was a massive gerrymander. Massive gerrymander, that's right, not held to account. I yeah. guess you, know, you could argue an upper house might have helped oppose that, but the, the Swedish example shows that you can have a one-chamber parliament which is in a very non-corrupt country, Sweden, very transparent, very high on trust and so on. The advantage I see in that is that governments are elected and they don't have excuses for not getting their policies through. They can't say, oh, it was the Senate that stopped me. Hmm. Uh, they can't blame you know, the constitution having it uh, a policy, the responsibility of the states. Therefore, they can be judged on their merits and, and voted out if, if they don't satisfy People. There's another interesting thing about the way the Swedish and Norwegian parliaments are set up to, if you'd like me to mention yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And that is that they're seated according to geography rather than party. And when I've been to the Swedish parliament, and the obvious difference when you walk into it is that it's a big semicircle. It's not two sides. It's ready. not adversarial in its sort of um, in its kind of uh, physical layout in the house itself in the Absolutely. chamber. Yeah. It's like one big committee, and so people are sitting next to each other who are from different parties but from the same regions. Okay, and that leads them to talk to one another about things they can they can advance in their respective parties to help their respective regions, and therefore leads to cooperation. Uh, as does proportional representation, which is a feature of many mm. Northern European countries. Yeah, no, they're, they're really interesting. So let's start where you do in the book, uh, just talking about some of the sort of economic, you know, you talk about going to the data. Well, uh, here's, a, here's an important uh, set of statistics. Uh, you note that childhood poverty in Australia sits at 12.5%, whereas in the Nordic countries, it's less than half of that at 5.9%. So what's driving that? Is it is it... Uh, is it the whole suite of policies, free childcare, income support? They're very important. A, a real focus on the early years um, as setting people up for life, which is, of course, what epidemiologists, uh, pediatricians, neuroscientists tell us increasingly is the basis for success in life, is get, having stable, safe, well-protected early childhood years. That's the reason Fiona Stanley is our cover endorser for the book too, of course. you know She's a, a leader in that field. But it comes back to, yes, affordable public and community early childhood education and care, valuing uh, early childhood education and care workers as, as important professional people who have particular skills that need to be remunerated properly, and the paid parental leave um, extensive provision, which ensures parents and their children have the time they need in those crucial early months and years. And is it fair to say, as we talk about these Nordic countries, I mean, what, what sense is there of uniformity across these countries as we make these generalisations? Or are we guilty sometimes of, even in this conversation, of uh, making generalisations that don't apply in all of those countries? Yes, we have to be careful with that. They are different from one another in some important respects in some areas. But our view that we take in the book, and we have three Swedish contributors to the book, is that there is enough commonality between them in, in the policy areas we discussed and distinction from between the Nordic countries and other countries to talk about them as a cluster. There are some academics who would, would like to differentiate them more, but it becomes a question of perspective and, and not seeing the, the forest for the trees sometimes. Yeah, and and – you're acknowledging that, aren't you? I mean, it's about really making some broader arguments. It's not 
to paper over those differences, but it's about seeing the common linkages and making that, that, that sort of comparative analysis with that kind of polity versus the kind we have here, for example. That's right. I mean, so Sweden and Norway, very similar to each other. They have both have the geographic seating I mentioned of the parliament. Sweden's the strongest on paid parental leave. Finland's the strongest in terms of school education. Denmark's the strongest in terms of skills retraining. And Norway's the, the exemplar on natural resource extraction and taxation, the, sov- the famous sovereign wealth fund. Um, yeah. And um, Iceland, uh, Iceland's a tiny country, of course. Iceland's only 300,000. It's even smaller than Tassie. Mm. Um, but Iceland is, is, is even further than Sweden in some respects in terms of gender equality. What about, um, just, just ducking back into that sort of political mm. discussion for a moment. What about the parties themselves? Is it, or, or, or let me put it another way. Are governments formed by majorities in their own right or are they generally coalitions? They're generally coalitions in, in recent decades. And that's partly because of proportional representation, which we know of in the Senate, tends not to produce absolute majorities and, of course, didn't produce – well, sorry. We got we got our minority government with Julia Gillard in 2010 through a system of uh, – not, not a system of proportional representation, but under majoritarian single-member electorates. So minority governments are not unusual. Coalition governments are common. So the current social democratic government in Sweden involves a coalition with the Greens and some others. So you tend in that circumstance to have a more consensual uh, mood in in the political class, really, don't you? I mean, all yeah. parties need to talk to each other. Going to your point about the geographic placement of them in the chamber, uh, in some cases, that's one of those things. But also the fact that if no party is going to hold a majority uh, in its own right, that it needs to have allegiances, it needs to have a cooperative approach, compromise becomes, you know, something you need to be good at. Definitely true. And also a focus on policy because when coalitions are nutted out after elections, people don't get too alarmed if there's not a, you know, a government immediately formed after an election. It takes time to nut out the coalition, the arithmetic of the results and people. And that, that discussion focuses on policy a lot. So there's an agreement that over the next term of office, particular policy commitments will be met. And this happens also, of course, in Germany, uh, a much larger country um, and an economic powerhouse of the world. Also a coalition government, Angela Merkel's led it for a long time, but in various coalitions. And I think it'll be a coalition again soon. And it's interesting there. I know it's not, we're off topic there, but the Greens are really making significant gains in German politics now and, uh, you know, really shaping as one of the major parties. Yeah, the Greens are now big at polling higher than the equivalent of the Labour Party there, the Social Democrats. Yeah. yeah. The second largest party. Yeah, it's going to be very uh, interesting to watch how that pans out. Speaking of which, in terms of Labour parties and so forth, I mean, one of the things that uh, characterises these Nordic countries is this tripartite culture of, 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 of Labour relations of, of uh, industrial relations that have worked out between government, unions and employers in a cooperative way. Mm. Uh, I guess that we've had our experiences with that in, in various ways in Australia through compulsory arbitration over a long period of time. It wasn't exactly that, but then, of course, the accord in the 1980s going into the 1990s, that all gave way to enterprise bargaining and a whole range of other things. But that, is that a, that's a key cultural pillar of, um, of, of the economies in those places, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, social partners, as they're termed, employers and trade unions 
often work together in a bipartite way too. Tripartism is there. I mean, one of the best examples was when Denmark's um, Social Democrat Prime Minister called in the unions and employers straight after COVID struck and they immediately agreed on uh, ongoing wage subsidy arrangements and so on. But the employer trade union relationship is cooperative on so many levels, including for skills retraining and sector-wide wage bargaining so that people have some wage certainty and they actually get some wage increases. Yes. When we come back, we'll talk about that because that's really interesting. We, we've 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 had some advances in that ourselves, uh, at least through the COVID period. So we'll mm. come back and talk about that and what lessons we can draw from it. Back in a moment. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking just before the break about labour relations and wage subsidies and COVID and so forth. We've seen some quite significant developments uh, in Australia in that regard, of course. Uh, we, we had Scott Morrison evincing a, you know, a fairly cooperative new style. He, he said there are no bosses and employers. There are, there are just Australians. Had a slightly nationalistic ring to it, but nonetheless, uh, I think the uh, the the motive was was fairly sound at the time. That was probably earlier than this last year, as things uh, things really sort of uh, deteriorated, and and governments could see how how bad it was going to get. They eventually, uh, of course, agreed to quite significant wage subsidies and a doubling of the unemployment benefit. In a sense, for a time, we were starting to look like some of these countries you're talking about. That's right. Australia suddenly became Nordic, not only with uh, wage subsidies, JobKeeper, doubling the unemployment payment, which had been re- uh, resisted for decades. Mm. By both sides, it needs to be said. Yes. I mean, I'd asked um, you know, uh, treasurers and shadow treasurers this question for years. I'd sort of made a habit of it, asking when are you going to do something about the dole? Mm. Uh, and even before the last election, even um, Chris Bowen, uh, I think, was um, quite, uh, well, he had an each way bet on it, put it that way. Labor hadn't committed to that, uh, to increasing the dole. And we have, you know, we've the permanent increase we've got after all of that was rolled back. Our Nordic experiment um, is that it's only been a fifty dollar a fortnight increase, uh, and we've we've uh, we've leapt from being the lowest in the OECD to, to the second lowest above Greece. Peter Whiteford's pointed this out. So we, you know, we've gone back, but the fact that Australia could suddenly double the unemployment payment, introduce major wage subsidies, and free childcare. Mm. Yeah, and free childcare, yeah. Three signature Nordic policies. It could do it overnight with bipartisan support because there was a, a pandemic, a global health emergency, shows that it can be done. Um, the only difference between Australia and the Nordic countries then 
uh, on the outside was that we had less snow and less Volvos. <laughs> well, that's true. Although, to be fair, the other key difference was that it was always known that it was temporary. Yes, but it, it went longer. It, it, it was a long temporary. I mean, it was long, you know, it was It was emergency a relief. Emergency relief nearly a year. But then all of a sudden, yeah, and we had all the evidence coming in from ACOS and others that the difference it was making for unemployment benefit recipients was that, for example, people could actually have three meals a day. Mm. People could have nutritious food. People could have warm clothes in winter for their kids and so on. And now all of that was necessary then and it's still necessary now. So why wind it back? Well, it's a good question, although uh, you know we know that uh, it was funded by borrowing and uh, governments have generally taken the view, certainly conservative governments have generally taken the view that you don't fund recurrent spending through borrowing. That's what they did in this case uh, because of the emergency circumstances. It'll be a question of how you pay for it, which brings us, of course, to tax. We'll come to that in just a moment because I just want to make one more point about the dole, and that is that, um, as you note in the book, the dole in Denmark is 90% of average weekly earnings. Here it's 40%. That's right. And yet we still had employers, even at the uh, $50 permanent increase that we now have, even at that modest increase, we still have employers complaining that it has some uh, depressing effect on the labour market, that there's not the incentive for people to work. Yes. Well, some employers are saying that. I mean, there has been – the Business Council was supporting an increase in the unemployment benefit some time ago. Uh, Yeah, that's true. A lot mm. of employer organisations had supported it and welfare organisations and Mm. economists, market economists – Lots of people had been supporting it. So it's good that the government's finally done something on it, but they've really done the bare minimum, haven't they? Done the bare minimum. And this argument that it, that it would, that it's a disincentive for workforce participation isn't uh, supported by the Nordic experience. So Denmark has its unemployment payment at 90% of the uh, replacement wage, but it has higher workforce participation than Australia, particularly among older mm. workers. So the idea that if there's higher unemployment payments, more people will leave the workforce and, you know, uh, live the high life. Um, it isn't supported by evidence. No. Well, speaking of things that aren't supported by evidence, that whole argument really about whether we can afford to do it or not is underpinned by the assumption that taxes can't go up, isn't it? It is. Uh, yeah. And, and th- th- that is not the experience of Nordic countries, which tend to be high tax and high living standards, yes. high wage countries. That's right. High tax high wage, higher happiness, higher prosperity. Ten countries in the world which have higher taxes than Australia are happier than Australia. No country in the world which has lower taxes than Australia is happier than Australia. Yeah, and how do we measure happiness? I mean, that's a pretty subjective sort of uh, index in some ways, isn't it? That's what people are going to say. Well, they might, but if then they then they'll have to wade through all the work that's been done by Richard <laughs> Layard and his team. Um, uh, the economics of happiness, a lot of very robust work done on how it's measured um, and so on. And it's it's fairly widely accepted. It, you, know, you could perhaps use another term, well-being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if there's, you know, subjectivity in that, there's a lot of uh, critique, rightly so, of the idea that GDP is the only measure of well-being because GDP includes many things that aren't necessarily good for well-being, including pollution. One of the uh, things that uh, we see also about these countries is that they are, you know, progressive on questions like the environment. Now, Norway is a good example of this, where um, you know there's a sovereign wealth fund, one of the most famous in the world. It's been built by oil reserves from North Sea Oil, I think, was it not? Yes, absolutely. Yes, Norway discovered North Sea Oil. As did Britain in the mid 1960s, they they divided up 
the North Sea between them, the Norwegian side, the British side. And they each took all that very lucrative North Sea oil and used it very differently. Thatcher famously used some of it to give tax cuts to fairly well-off people in Britain. Um, Norway stashed it away in prudently uh, for the long term of the whole nation. And Norway also told the American and other overseas oil companies they were welcome to come in and drill for the oil and make profit, but they had to pay a high tax. And uh, when companies said they wouldn't do so, Norway thanked them for their interest and said, well, see you later. And then they came back. Well, yeah, they said, okay, well, you have to pay the tax. Mm. And they came back and said, actually, yeah, we think we can pay the tax. We can can pay the tax and still make a quid out of this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which is, of course, what Australia should have done with the resources super profits tax. When Rio Tinto and and the others uh, were saying they were going to leave us the world's richest known deposit of iron ore and and hope another one turned up somewhere else, I think we should have said good luck. Well, we should have, but that would have involved a degree of political commitment skill in selling it. I mean, it struck me at the time that that was a uh, sort of a solution searching for a problem, uh, really, in terms of the way it was marketed to the Australian people. It was, it was, you know, when you looked at it, it was very sound, right? But they hadn't done any of the spade work, that is the, the Rudd-Swan uh, government, hadn't done really any of the spade work to establish the problem before presenting the solution. They just simply presented the solution. Uh, they didn't sell it very well. They became a sitting duck, really, for this massive, uh, you know, well-funded campaign from the resources sector, from the Minerals Council in particular, which ran all those arguments. There was all that stuff running about, you know, um, this government is killing the golden goose, yep. uh, all, all that, or well, the goose that laid the golden egg. Made gooses of us all, really, including me, obviously. <laughs> Made geese of us all, yeah. Um, <laughs> geese, yes. That That's a very good point, and I agree with that. And Tom Swan, who's written the chapter in our book on the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, talks a lot about how that was must have been one of the best returns an advertising campaign has ever got, you know, for a few hundred thousand or whatever it was, million. Yeah. They got billions, perhaps trillions um, of tax they continue no longer to pay. And, you know, I remember being very annoyed personally when I saw those ads, basically, because they were saying that if you if you supported the mining industry paying a fair share of tax, you were un-Australian, you're anti-multicultural, you're anti-children, you're anti-anything, you're anti-parenthood. I mean, mm. that, that was the sort of best. I thought, this is just absolutely rubbish. Yeah. And and when mining industry gets off relatively tax-free, uh, that's not good for other industries like manufacturing. No, that that's correct. But uh, yes, it was a it was a, it was a very bizarre situation. The government that was weakened was yeah. struggling to explain divided it. government weakened, divided. It had just uh, it was it was sort of uh, compromised by having walked away from emissions trading as mm. the the great moral fight. Uh, and uh, yes, it, things were were looking pretty dire. I remember I'd actually I was covering federal politics at the time, and I I'd actually been out of the country on a holiday for a couple of weeks, and I came back, and this was. Suddenly, the issue, and I thought it, it, it you know, for, for the voters, and because I'd been away, I guess it was made more stark. But for the voters, it just sort of hoved out of nowhere as a as a fight. Yeah, that's true. On the other hand, the Henry Tax Review uh, was what proposed the resources super profits tax. Yes, Heather Redoubt, the CEO of the Australian Industry Group, was a member of the Henry Tax Review, so she was supporting it, mm. presumably. Um, the Australian Industry Group is more representative of manufacturing industry than the mining industry. Yeah. So there could have been more employer and wider support for it, but I agree that the the the, the politi- 
political campaigning and uh, explanation was severely lacking and it needs to be revisited um, because otherwise we're going to continue to have major revenue problems and if we don't want to go into debt, then we're going to have to raise the money, as you say, and that will And it was only a super profits tax. I mean, it, it only applied when you were making super profits. That's right. Uh, it's, it's, it's not that objectionable. We've got limited time, so let's just mm. talk about a couple of other ideas that are in the book. Um, uh, you've, you've secured Margot Wallström, former Swedish foreign minister, uh, and she talks about feminist foreign policy and gender budgeting and some of those sorts of things that have come up there. Really fascinating chapter in the book, I think. Yeah, th- thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been great making contact with Margaret. We were actually just prior to COVID hitting, we the Australian Institute had committed to bring her out here. We invited her. We made great contact with her through the res- respective ambassadors from Sweden and Australia, and then COVID prevented that. So we turned to the book project, and I've had quite a few Zoom meetings and correspondence with Margot. I feel like he's a good friend now, actually. Um, I know a lot about her pictures of her retirement home with her husband and her grandchildren and pets and so on. But she was an amazing foreign minister of Sweden from 2014 to 2019. She pushed the feminist foreign policy, building on the strong gender equality achievements of her country, Sweden, domestically to take that into the to the international sphere. And one of the things she highlighted, I didn't know this, uh, perhaps other people did, but I didn't know that one in every five girls under the age of 18 is married. Um, and she emphasizes how terrible that is for preventing women from having life chances yeah. independently. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And and uh, this is part of the sort of whole women, peace and security push. She She makes the point, for example, that Less than ten percent of peace deals around the world, peace agreements, have a, a woman's signature on them, and that when women are doing foreign policy, they seek to go about it differently, and that the uh, you know greater involvement of women in those councils of the world will result in better outcomes. She does, and and her claims are supported by evidence, uh, which we've referenced in the book. Uh, more women, more peace is her argument. More women involved in negotiating peace, the more durable peace is likely to be, the more it's likely to be achieved. Women are more likely to be consensual in decision-making negotiations. And one example she gave, um, which is relevant to Australia, actually, is when Donald Trump was posturing about North Korea before he became sort of pally with um, the North Korean leader, it caused a lot of alarm. And you may recall an Australian citizen, Alex Sigley, was stuck in North Korea mm. and there was grave fears for his safety and it was a Swedish envoy uh, sent by Margot Wallström who extricated him. And Maurice Payne, uh, Australia's Foreign Minister, specifically thanked Margot Wallström in the Senate for enabling that release. And that goes back not only to her person and her skill and style but also the long tradition of Sweden and, and other Nordic countries in taking an innovative approach in foreign policy, not alienating states, making them pariah states, keeping up dialogue, building trust and so on uh, to be able to achieve objectives like that. And it's healthy for democracy as well because there are uh, plenty of people who need to see themselves represented in governments, represented by the uh, the governments that they elect and represented 
globally by by women as well. It's uh, it's extraordinary. And we think about some of the world leaders that are regularly cited as being admired by Australians, and there are people like Jacinda Ardern and Angela Merkel, and indeed some of these Nordic leaders uh, mm. uh, who have been you know very prominent in you know leading a push for for kind of civilization, I guess you would say for. Some level of peace and consensus, rather than conflict and jaw jutting and 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 war and threatening and all that sort of carry on. Uh, and it makes me think, you know, when we're recording this, the day after Barnaby Joyce has just made his way back into the uh, leadership of the government. And I was just thinking about this before we, you know, did this recording that you could actually put shoulder to shoulder all of the um, the, the leaders of the parties that could make up that make up the government now, or would make up the government. If the other side were to win, and at the moment, you know, you would have Joyce and Morrison and Frydenberg as the as the leader, you know, deputy leader of the Liberal Party, Adam Band and the Greens, of course, Richard Miles and Anthony Albanese in the Labor Party. Mm-hmm. True to say that there are two women leading the Labor Party in the Senate, uh, but you know, the Senate is the Senate. Mm-hmm. It really is a dominant. You know, politics is still dominated by men, and uh, how can we expect democracy to work if people can't see themselves reflected in those in the top tier of government? Absolutely, and and increasing the proportion of women uh, in parliament and in the executive is extremely important. The Nordic countries are more advanced than Australia in that respect. Labor, of course, did quite a lot um, with Emily's list and mm. so on. And Julie Gillard became our first and so far only female prime minister. We've got a long way to go. And, and the, the extent of the horrific culture are in, in Parliament House and all the things that have gone on in the last year or so shows how far we have to go. And it's ironic that another Swedish contributor, Lenita Friedenvall, advises the Swedish parliament on gender equality. And she co-writes a chapter with Marin Saw from ANU on gender budgeting. And Marion makes the point in that that Australia invented gender budgeting in the 1980s, was the world leader. The mid-1980s, Ann Summers was involved. It went very well, but then it it it, it disappeared. It was discontinued, whereas Sweden uh, Abbott was the one who sort of drove the stake through it, was he not? Yes, I think that's true to say, yes, mm. yes, because Keating was a supporter of it. Yes, mm. that's right. The Abbott government, it, it, it declined in that time. Mm. Uh and when Scott Morrison was asked, you know, what do you think about gender budgeting? He said, well, you don't fill in a blue form and a pink form when you do your tax. You know? yeah. um, he didn't seem to understand that, you know, budget decisions are not gender neutral, that they can- They always set up these false binaries, though, <laughs> don't they? I mean, he's he's a master at it. Uh, you know, I saw a grab of him the other day talking about, um, you know, the, the justifying getting rid of targets for the vaccination program. He said, we're not interested in targets, we're just going to get on with it. As if That's <laughs> they're right. the two yeah. choices. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And and this business about yeah, net zero emissions by 2050, preferably or as soon as possible. Yeah. Anyway, there's a lot uh, of hedging there. Sophistry, yeah. <laughs> but gender equality, gender budgeting, feminist foreign policy, huge themes in the book. And we're delighted to have had those inputs from those leading women from the Nordic countries. Denmark has a, a female social democratic prime minister at the moment, Mette Fredriksen, and uh, another prominent female leader, um, going back a bit, uh, Norway's Prime Minister Gro Harlem Brundtland is mentioned in the book. But she made a contribution not only as a female Prime Minister of Norway, but also the the Brundtland Commission for the UN on Sustainable Development had previously been an Environment Minister. Unusual for an Environment Minister to become Prime Minister has happened in Australia with Malcolm Turnbull, I think. 
but hmm. I think he was technically environment minister. And I think Albanese is trying to make it happen again. He's a, he's a former environment minister, I think. Is he? Okay, right. Well, yeah, that, that's a good thing to have former environment ministers become prime ministers because it may help get the environment the central attention that it needs if our planet's to survive. So there's quite a bit of emphasis in the book, as you expect from the Australian Institute, on, on environmental policy and energy policy, including electric vehicles, as well as emissions reduction. And Dan Cass and Ricky Merzian's chapter also looks at cooperative agreements in Denmark for wind power and how Denmark became a leader in mm. wind power. Yes, they're all valuable contributions. It's a fascinating book and it does have, as you say, a really a, a very broad policy sweep and lots of contributions uh, there that are, that are really quite interesting. And I think one of the things you say in the introduction is that you've, you've kind of curated it in a way that you've looked at policies that would be reasonably applicable in Australia, that, that, that are actually achievable. They're not, you know, going back to where we started, I suppose, about, you know, cultural, political cultural differences between the two, uh, between Australia and those Nordic countries. You're saying, well, these are things that actually you could imagine Australia doing. Now, one of the other reasons that we don't do things that we're often mm. told is is this thing. And I'll get you to explain this a bit further, but um, it's often described in the literature as path dependency theory. So the argument basically that once you're on a particular path in a policy area and you've established norms and institutions and expectations, it becomes almost impossible, certainly unlikely, that you'll make any radical deviations from that. And therefore, we're not going to embrace some of these policy ideas because we're too far down the track in another direction. Yes, that that we feel is an important argument to to, to deal with early. So my co-editor Rod Campbell and I discussed that in our first chapter because that's a bit like monoculturalism. It's one of the other sort of big mental blocks that some people seem to have in looking to the Nordic countries. Mm. It doesn't stand up well to scrutiny. The idea that path dependence has much validity in the sense that history does matter. Countries that do get on particular trajectories do retain some of those, but it doesn't mean that they can't change significantly. And we've just talked about the example of gender budgeting being invented in Australia, but then disappearing and being taken up elsewhere. Um, so bringing it back in Australia would be going back to a previous path, for example. Yeah. Uh, and then the and, and you talk about Sweden, for example. The history of Sweden is yep. is is quite a, its economy, its society was quite different mm. from what we would say the social democracy that it is these days. Absolutely, nineteenth century Sweden was a very poor country, a very unequal country. In many ways, it was like Ireland, a country of mass immigration from poverty, going to the United States and elsewhere, and it changed substantially in the twentieth century because of political decisions, uh, enfranchisement, extension of the vote, social democratic parties and trade unions, organising well, having good leaders, putting up ideas which one support, forging alliances with farmers, the Agrarian Party. The Agrarian Party, Farmers Party in Sweden is allied, aligned with the left rather than the right, uh, which makes some sense in, um, when you look at the you know, modern national, former national party figures like Tony Windsor and mm. Rob Oakshot in yeah. the sense that rural areas don't necessarily do better. In fact, they probably do worse aligning with a an urban profit-driven party. Yeah. So uh, the countries can change. And, of course, the idea that 
path dependency prevents change is the opposite of what we're always being told that globalization means that we have to change and you know we we can't do what we used to do and that's why we got rid of tariffs uh and then the we didn't hear people screaming that it was impossible to bring an enterprise bargaining and move away from strong arbitration and becoming more american mm. our wage setting mm. and inequality outcomes. We didn't hear people saying then, oh, you can't do that because path dependency. Mm. Um, and so- But path dependency, I suppose, it doesn't make it impossible to change, but it does make it easier to stay the same. And, uh, you know, so it's almost like a, a, a buttress of inertia. Yes, a buttress and- of inertia. And that can be an excuse for inaction uh, or lack of ambition, lack yeah. of imagination. And we see that. We, we were talking about the dole before, right? Yep. There's, there's this sort of incremental grudging reluctance to, you know, eke it up a bit further, mm. notwithstanding, you know, doubling it for a brief period of time. But that was because a whole lot of voters were about to become unemployed, let's be honest. I mean, yes. a lot of that was about saying, well, look, a lot of our people or a lot of electors are about to suddenly not have a job. And so it was made a livable wage briefly, but uh, yes, it, it, the the reluctance to do anything uh, radical has seen this incremental increase. But the logic of keeping the dole as a sort of a subsistence, temporary assistance remains. Yeah, that's true. And the idea that you know you don't want to be seen to be rewarding those who aren't in the paid workforce with the strong work ethic and so on—that's there. But on the other hand. When when enough people become unemployed, it's okay to double it. Yeah, yeah. You know, because um, they're they're that's political clout. <laughs> that's political clout. The thing that that the Nordics have, the virtuous circle that they have, is that people know that by paying the taxes that they do, if they become unemployed, they will have financial support, not only to give them an, a good income, an adequate income, um, but also they'll have skills retraining support. They know that if they get sick, they've got um, good health care. They know that when they have children, they have uh, extensive paid parental leave. Therefore, the taxes they pay are connected with the services they get. And that we know from opinion polls uh, done by many groups, including per capita, for example, that Australians do say they're prepared to pay more taxes if they get better transport, public transport, health, education, and infrastructure. Now, a lot of campaigners in political parties say, oh, they don't really mean it, you know, and uh, the ones who are saying that aren't the aspirational voters in mm. the marginal seats. But the Nordic experience shows that people will pay higher taxes when it's connected with better services. Have they had better Have they had better advocates? Are, are, there, are there sort of better communicators on the left, generally speaking, than we've had? Uh, you know, Tony Abbott and others have been very successful at uh, at sort of trotting out these mantras that have tended to very much frame – the, the, the working understanding that most people have, you know, to limit the horizon of it. Things like you don't tax your way to prosperity. Yep. That cutting taxes is kind of ipso facto good. It is, it is, it is just a necessary thing always to be bidding down the tax rate. Of course, what we ended up with is a, a state that is, uh, you know, in some ways kind of atrophied. Uh, and that's why we had to suddenly buttress it to the extraordinary extent yep. that we did during, during the crisis. I wonder whether, and this is perhaps the last question, a note to finish on, do we need from our social democratic politicians greater imagination and just greater a greater communicational skill? Yeah, I think we do, yes. I mean, uh, I think there have been some outstanding leaders in the Nordic countries that have been important. I've mentioned Groholm and Brundtland and Margot Volstrom. One of Margot Volstrom's heroes is Olaf Palme. She mentioned him in the book, an outstanding leader. 
contemporary of assassinated, unfortunately. Mm. Yes, tragically assassinated in 1986. Mm. Contemporary of Gough Whitlam, uh, some similarities. But going further back, two Australians have written a book which we cite in our book um, about one of the key architects of the Swedish social democratic achievements was Ernst Vigfors, who was a treasurer for many years uh, from the 1930s. And he was a a really good example of a politician who was also an intellectual who would always be prepared to take up the argument to his opponents and uh, persuade the public of the merits of his view. And we need to see more of that. Yeah, people who actually start out with the ambition of persuading rather than just giving us talking points. Absolutely. Persuasion, debate, uh, and, and doing it, you know, over a long period of time. And we need a more intellectual culture in our mm. politics. And perhaps uh, breaking down the adversarialism can be a start uh, towards that. Let's hope that this book serves that purpose of arming people with better arguments about some of these things, uh, you're taking on those presumptions that seem to underpin a lot of uh, Australian political discourse about you know low tax is good and, and so forth. Let's hope that uh, we can have that debate happening at a higher level, and this book will go a long way to uh, to serving that purpose. Thank you, Mark. I really hope so, and thank you for your interest. Uh, it's a pleasure, and, and congratulations to you and to all the, the co-authors of the book. Uh, it's um, out from – it's out now, is it, I take it? It's out on the 2nd of July um, in bookshops. Yep. Right. Well, that's Democracy Sausage for this week. I uh, look forward to talking to you again next week. Until then, bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.